And it's important that this kind of sets the context for what we're going to be looking at tonight, which is, okay, if we're seeking first God's kingdom, what does that look like? What does it look like? And, and we're going to see some analogies related to how to be ready for the return of Jesus, right? How as faithful disciples of Christ, we are, should be busy doing his work now and looking forward with anticipation to whenever he returns. Uh, and definitely don't be caught slacking off when Christ returns. So I want to go ahead and start by reading chapter 12, verses 35 through 40. Jesus says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So there's a couple of different ways that Jesus is explaining the same concept, he, about being ready at any time, and that we aren't going to be able to necessarily predict, and so we just need to be doing the things the Master has set for us to do. But it begins in verses 35 and 36, and, and the message here is to be ready at all times for the Master, for Jesus to return. And he, he begins with this phrase um, that's translated in the ESV as, stay dressed for action. And the literal what's going on here in the original language is basically says, your waist having been belted. And what it is describing is, is if you have a long robe and it's loose, you're not ready to get up and run around and do some stuff, you're going to trip. And so instead, you're supposed to you know, tuck it in your belt, and, and then you're, it's under control, and you're ready to run around and do the things of a servant. And so the, the grammatical construction there is one that is talking about an ongoing state, that we get ready, and then we stay ready, that it has an ongoing aspect to it that we should be ready for as long as it takes to be ready, which may very well be for our entire lives. But the call is to have this ongoing state of readiness, dress for action. It talks about having your lamps lit, right? Lamps burning. Uh, it means you've got to have supply of oil ready there. Got to be ready. You've got to do all the basics that you are ready so that whenever the Master does come, you can welcome Him in. Welcome in the house. Right, and, and clearly this is alluding to the return of Jesus. It is telling us to be eagerly expecting Christ's return, to welcome him back. But, but it's also getting to the point as we go through the verses that we're not going to be able to predict when, right? We don't play a guessing game. It's like, oh, I think I'm safe. I can just do nothing for the next couple of years, and then I'll worry about Jesus' return, you know, in another, you know, two, three, four years. The point is, be ready. Because the master might come knocking at any point, right? So we're to be like men who are, who are waiting for their master to come home so that they may open the door at once. And then verse 37 describes the tremendous blessing that waits for us if we're ready. Right? We, wanna, we, wanna, we can read it, and then I want us to think about who this is really talking about. It says, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service, and have them recline at table. Now, we've 
had a couple of episodes in our recent weeks of reclining at table. It was sort of the ultimate in luxuriating in first century dining. It meant you were having a very fancy meal. You were relaxed because servants couldn't, couldn't recline at table. Servants had to be ready for action. And so what he's really talking about is essentially a reversal. That For those servants who are found faithful, when the master returns, they're going to switch places in a sense. The servants will be rewarded by having the opportunity to recline at table as if they were the master. And the master himself will serve and take care of them. So what a tremendous blessing if you think about this. right? The blessing that awaits us when we are a faithful servant, when we are ready when Jesus returns, is that we will recline at table and, and it will be the, the divine table, what, what was often called the messianic banquet, something described throughout the Old Testament as well as the new, this notion of a, of, a, of a, and I think there's a literal as well as a figurative aspect of it, of this tremendous feast of God, this reward, the greatest things we can imagine when the kingdom comes, when the second time, when it is perfected, when Christ returns. Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9 is one of the most famous passages describing, uh, again, what we often call the Messianic banquet. It says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This is sort of the ultimate uh, enjoyment, if you will, of the presence of God, the, the rewards of salvation. And this is what Jesus is bringing into the, to the picture here to, to tell us the importance, the extreme importance of living a life as a disciple that is ready to answer to Christ at any time. To welcome him with open arms upon his return. He says it becomes in the second watch or in the third watch and finds them awake. Blessed are those servants. And the second watch and the third watch, those are, those are late at night, very late at night. Um, there's two different opinions on whether they're describing the Jewish watch system which divided the night into three four-hour watches, in which case the second watch is from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m., and the third watch is from 2 p.m. to 6 a.m., real late. Or maybe does Luke have in mind, the, the, is he recording here, the Roman watch system, which divided the night into four three-hour shifts. It doesn't really matter which watch system. The point is, it is late. It, the emphasis is on the uncertainty of the time. But there's no way to put a finger on it and say, oh, it's going to be on this date and on this time. Instead, it's, it's going to be some time that's unexpected. It, I think you get the implication. It's going to be some time where it's going to be a little bit of a, a trial to have, to have had the discipline to stay awake and alert. Right? It's easy to be ready to answer the door at 8 p.m., most nights anyway. But uh, 2 a.m., not so much. I, uh, I woke up this morning at 3 a.m. and couldn't go back to sleep. That's very unusual for me. So I was at one of these watches. I would not have wanted to answer the door. But nonetheless, I was, I was awake, so I guess that's some version of ready. 
And the point is that it has been nearly 2,000 years since the resurrection, but the faithful should still be waiting in anticipation. We shouldn't just assume, well, it hasn't happened in 2,000 years. It's not going to happen tomorrow, and it's not going to happen in my lifetime. I'm not going to worry about it. The message here is every generation of Christian should be faithful, should be found ready and waiting all of the time, every time, because the day is going to come. And the blessing for those who are ready is tremendous. And as we'll see elsewhere, the, when you're not ready, the punishment is also fairly severe. Because it means you haven't taken seriously the things of Jesus, the things of God. And then in verses 39 and 40, we get another sort of illustration. Jesus gives us another uh, analogy of, of how unpredictable the date or time of his return will be. Here we get that very famous comparison to a thief coming in the night, right? If the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into, right? If we knew when Jesus was going to return, well, we'd all put on a really good show of being prepared about starting about 15 minutes before he came. The point is we don't get to have that luxury. We don't get to pick if anybody's out there saying, all right, Jesus is coming back on this date, and there's been various famous people who have made that claim over the years. Uh, you know they're lying, that they are deceived, that they are wrong, and that they are trying to really lull you into not taking seriously the, the return of Christ. So the point is, Christ's return is going to be unpredictable, but we have to be ready. And this is every Christian has to be ready. We have to be doing the things of a disciple, the things that Jesus commanded us to do. Because otherwise, what does it mean when we said we're following Jesus, but we're not really following him? Questions about that? That went by fairly quick, but questions or comments on these on that passage? Yeah. Uh, this does imply that every Christian, 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 Ready. Ready. Even because at that second coming of Christ, we're going to be there answering for what we were doing when we took our last breath. Yes. So, so, we, yeah, it's very real about it. It come any moment during the moment, but, but um, we're going to know him in an instant when we Correct, correct. And the good news is, even if we, if we fail in this area, right, if we are a genuine believer in Jesus Christ, he will stand up and, and say, I've got this covered. But that doesn't mean it's not going to be, I think, uncomfortable to have to give account for the re why we just weren't doing the things he told us to do, why we weren't ready at any point. His time is our time anyway. It doesn't matter. Right. Two to four, whatever. His time is not our time. Exactly. We just have to follow what he wants us to do. Exactly. In season, out of season. When it's convenient, when it's not convenient, when we're in the good times, when we're in the bad times.
Yeah. Yeah, that just it, it speaks to that you know that incredible fellowship experience we're going to have in the presence of of God. Uh, you know, as we we're told, He's going to wipe away our tears. You know, He's going to make the hurts and the and the pains go away. Uh, it's going to be incredible. So, what I'd like to do is take some time for us to pray before we get to the next portion of the passage. And what I'd like to suggest is, uh, and I'm going to open it up for you all to pray, and then at an appropriate time I'll come in and close in prayer. But I would suggest, and you can pray about anything, right? It's free. It's our chance to come before the Lord in prayer. But I would suggest that uh, where possible, let's target this question of praying about our readiness and our faithfulness to the call, our faithfulness to the Master, our readiness for when we will meet him, whether it is when he returns here or when we face him upon our death. So let me, uh, I'll just quickly open us and then turn the floor over to you all. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gathering. We thank you for these words, Lord. Uh, They challenge us and excite us. So Lord, I pray that you will hear our prayers, the prayers of your people, as we consider how to apply these truths and live these truths in our lives. Dear Heavenly Father, we, we live in a, an age and a time and a place that is so full of temptations and distractions that try to lure us away from being ready. They try to say, we don't have to be faithful today. We can be faithful another day. We can be ready tomorrow. They tell us, you're in great health. You have great doctors. It'll be years before you have to worry about dying. So you have time to to have a little fun before you're ready to meet Christ. It says it's been 2,000 years since Jesus left. So what are the odds? He'll return soon. You have time. Time to take care of material business, time to make some money, time to have some fun, time to do any number of things that bubble to the top of our priority list ahead of you, Lord, ahead of your kingdom, ahead of your work. Lord, help us to resist these temptations. Your word tells us to not be anxious about the material things of the world, to let them go, to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness that you will take care of what we need from there. So Lord, help us to choose that path. The path that says our attention, our focus, is on being the good servant, the ready servant. That we are ready at any time to give an answer when we are called to account. Ready at any time to welcome your Son with open arms, should today be the day he returns ready at any time to stand before the throne of judgment, confident in our salvation and the grace of Jesus Christ by which we stand, but knowing, too, that when we give account, just as we have sins, we also have sought first the kingdom. Lord, I pray that we would each be people who will hear, well done, good and faithful servants that we would indeed be ready to welcome our Savior with passion and love, that we would be found ready 
and willing and faithful at the key moment. And to do that is not about timing, it's not about guessing, it's about living a life of faithful discipleship in obedience to your Son. It's in His precious and holy name we pray. Amen. So now we move to the second part of this passage, and it's an interesting one, and there is a lot of discussion about kind of who's covered by the first passage, who's covered by the second passage. So I'll give you my interpretation, I'll give you why, and uh, if you disagree, we can certainly have a discussion. You're welcome to, to share that perspective. But we'll begin in verse 41. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And Peter's referring back to the previous parables related to the, the servants and the thief coming in the night. <clears throat> Got to be ready at any moment. And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager, whom his master will set over his household, to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So this passage begins with sort of, it has a transitory verse, verse 41, as Peter is asking if that last bit was, was that, was that just for us, the the disciples, the, the inner circle, or is that for everybody? And the interesting thing is, Jesus doesn't exactly directly answer the question. Instead, he answers the question by, by telling another parable. And I think what he does is, if you look at this parable, is it's essentially laying out an even higher standard for those who have responsibility for the flock. For those who have responsibility for caring and leading and teaching God's people, the apostles, the pastors, the deacons, the teachers, the mentors, the disciplers. And so by giving this higher standard for those who are in positions of management, of authority, of having to provide for and care for others, he's essentially answering, the previous bit was for every believer. This next part is for those who I call to service as caretakers for the flock. So we see verses 42 and 43 starts on a positive note. The Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager, whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Right. So this is talking about a position of responsibility, a position responsible for taking care of a number of the master's servants. Right. We know the master is Jesus. The servants are the faithful. Christians, the managers who are to provide the food, the nourishment, the spiritual, in this case, food, that would be your pastors and teachers, leaders, apostles, and so forth. So those responsible for kind of managing the household of God here on earth. And he says there's going to be, there's going to be a great blessing then. 
Verse 43, blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. So when, when Christ returns or when that person passes away and faces the judgment seat and is called to account for what they do, if they have been found, you have devoted your life to providing spiritual nurture and care and, and real spiritual food to those entrusted in your care. Maybe it's a small group. Maybe it's a small flock. Maybe it's a church. But those whom you have been given some responsibility, if you are faithful with that, right? Blessed is that servant who's going to be found in this. It says, truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. So it's important to realize the reward for faithful leadership and stewardship is greater responsibility. That you're entrusted with, what does he say, all of his possessions. And I am reminded here, I think I'm drawn to Revelation 22, verses 4 and 5, which is one that uh, we don't always think about, um, although I mention it with a fair frequency because I think it's a really exciting thing that waits for us. Right? And it's at the very end. It says, They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And that part of our eternal life as faithful servants, as faithful stewards of what God has given us, is that we will reign with Christ. And that we have indeed, the reward is greater responsibility. We, have see, we see this same kind of teaching in the parable of the talents uh, in other places where it says, oh, you've been faithful over small things, now I'm going to put you over much. You were faithful over this, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to put you over two cities and five cities. So, so the reward is actually greater responsibility in the kingdom. The opportunity to serve God in an even greater and richer and eternal way. And that's exciting. That's not always what we think about, right? We often think about my reward is to sit around and strum a harp. But in fact, it's doing really exciting, cool things for God uh, eternally. So that's the, that's the reward side, right? If if you have some responsibility, like if, if, you're just, if you're in a discipleship relationship with somebody and you're faithfully discipling them and helping them grow in Christ, there's a reward for that because you are being faithful in doing what you are to do, providing what you are to provide for other believers. If you're a Sunday school teacher, there is a reward for that. If you are faithful in providing the true word of God, the true you know, spiritual nourishment of the Bible, it's exciting. Because many of us are called in different aspects of this, and, and the point is, there is a great reward for this. But not everybody who's called or placed in a position of responsibility does the job they're supposed to do. And Jesus presents three categories of people who fail. Leadership failure. And he begins with the worst of the worst, verses 45 and 46, which are the abusers of the flock, the people who have abused their power. They've been given spiritual responsibility for somebody instead of, or a group of people, instead of nurturing them and growing them, they have taken advantage of them, and they've taken advantage of the gifts they've been given, and they've abused the people, and, the, you know, and, and you might call them predators, if you will. Verses 45 and 46, but if that servant says to himself, ah, my master is delayed in coming, right? And so once again, we're brought into mind this, connectivity with the previous passage where about that return of Jesus, right? The when is the master coming? Oh, he, he hasn't come yet. I can I can get away with doing some stuff. I can get away with 
you know, cheating out of different things. I can get away with taking advantage of the church or, or abusing the hospitality of my Sunday school class. Right? If you think you can do that and you start to take advantage of people, it's beating the male and female servants and, and eat and drink, right? Eating and drinking what? The, the possessions of the master, right? You begin consuming the, the things of God that you're supposed to be stewarding and managing and distributing and instead you're just wasting it on yourself. And you get drunk and you, you fail in your responsibility. It says the master of that servant is going to come on a day when he does not expect it. At an hour, he does not expect it. And what does he say, right? He says that he is going to cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. I think we have to understand that if we see someone who, who so clearly misunderstands the gospel, so clearly misunderstands what it means to shepherd the flock, so clearly misunderstands what it means to shepherd and manage and steward the resources of God, this is someone who never truly knew Christ. This is someone who was never saved. And it is a sad statement that throughout history, there have been leaders in the church who have clearly never known Christ, who have led the flock astray, led them into cults, right? led them away from the Word, led them towards idolatries, led them towards any number of things like that, taking advantage of them along the way. And the point is, that person, that leader, will be damned because they were never saved. And it is surprising that even you know up to this day and age, but it's also been true historically, there are a surprisingly large number of pastors who are not actually Christians. Right? There are, uh, I have read accounts of many you know, preachers and pastors and talk about when other pastors come to faith, right? They come forward and realize that they have been serving in a church for years and they never actually believed the gospel. They never actually accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Now you see it more, you see it is particularly prevalent in some countries where there's sort of an official state church that's state-supported. Um, I think Neil will tell you some good stories about like the German, you know, the Lutheran church in Germany, right? That's a state-sponsored church. It doesn't matter if anybody actually goes to your church, tax money supports it, and there are many pastors there who just pick it because it looks like a good steady job for your life with a steady paycheck. Uh, without ever believing. And so there's actually an active missionary outreach to pastors who don't believe in Jesus. And that's this first category. Then we see in verse 47, we see the lazy pastor, the lazy teacher, the lazy deacon, right? That servant who, who knew his master's will, right? We know what Jesus wants us to do. We read it in scripture. You, you can't say you didn't know because you heard it, you read it, you saw it, but you didn't do it. Did not get ready or act according to his will. Right? There's a big difference between the head knowledge of what Scripture tells us to do as a disciple and then there's living as a disciple. That's a huge difference. And it doesn't say that those people are unsaved. Right? They're not, the language here is not about being cast out with the unbelievers. They're not damned. They are saved. But there is a consequence for having failed to prepare and care for the flock properly, for, for having had some degree of faith and yet nonetheless not putting in action, not living as a disciple. And it's hard a little bit to reconcile exactly what this is going to look like, but it, you know, I think the point is there is going to be severe displeasure on the part of our master. 
Are we saved? Well, if we were a believer in Jesus Christ, yes. And yet somehow we're going to have this awareness that we have utterly failed to do the things we were commanded to do and to use the resources we were given in a way that honored and glorified God and obeyed Jesus Christ. So we don't want to be in that category either. And the verse 48 talks about the leader who is ignorant. And you see this in places, right? It's, it's not so much a common thing, I suppose, in, in sort of a first world, overeducated kind of uh, church culture like in America. But you do see it in places where the pastors are earnest. They love God. They love Jesus. They're doing their best, but they just simply don't have much knowledge much training, they don't even have that much access to the scripture. You'll see this in third world countries where they can't even get a hold of a Bible in their own language. Uh, and so they're doing the best they can, but they are limited. Um, and so the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating is going to receive a light beating, right? There's going to be some amount of, of, of dissatisfaction, but you also there's an understanding. You, sim- you did your best, you simply didn't know. Um, So there's an accountability there because everyone who is given authority and responsibility for the flock is going to be held to account. Scripture is consistent on that. Every pastor, everyone given that sort of responsibility as a teacher or leader is going to be held to account for what they taught to the the believers and to the unbelievers. But the point is it's not nearly as severe if you are simply negligent, I mean if you're simply ignorant versus being negligent or abusive. I think one of the takeaways, too, is not just about what does it mean for us in positions of leadership or as teachers or as uh, mentors, but it's also, it says, you know, for each of us, we need to watch our shepherds. You know, keep an eye on your pastor. Now, we're called on the one hand to respect and honor them, right? That is a part about faithful obedience. But on the other hand, we also have to recognize they are human beings, right? I'm a human being. Mark's a human being. We are flawed. We fall short in areas, and there has to be an awareness of that, and, and a vigilance is necessary. Yeah. Where's, my, where's my eraser to chuck? Then we get to the conclusion here, right? Everyone to whom much was given, much is going to be required. And obviously in context, it's specifically talking about those given the responsibility for the church, but this is a broader principle, right? Because if you think about it, have you been given much? Right? You've been given a salvation. You've been given the presence of God in your life. You've been given sanctification. You have been given the Great Commission. Right, Every, every church is to pass on to all believers. Right, And to, to go out, to, to go, to make disciples. Part of making disciples is what? Teaching them to obey. What is everything commanded? What did he command? Go and make disciples. So... We've been given a commission as both individuals and as a church. We've been given education. We've been given freedom in this country. We have been given fairly abundant resources by the historical global standards of the world. So have you been given much? And if the answer is yes, and most of us here should be able to say yes, then we need to recognize this principle is here. It is valid and applies to us, right? Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. By required, it means it's expected, right? That we have lived a life commensurate to how we have been gifted by God. From him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So there's much expected out of what we've been given to use it for God's glory.
So, questions and comments on that? Mm -hmm. And I, I think I led astray because in chapter five it talks about these are all the Yeah, and I don't exactly know what the reconciliation is. I couldn't reconcile it, but I think I just messed it up more than I did saying it right. Yeah. Yeah, it's a difficult, I mean, it's a difficult thing to reconcile. I mean, I think the point is, you know, one, I think we can hold firmly to the truth, right? One, in heaven, it is joyful, but there is also this accountability, and I think at that point, we are going to be abundantly clear how we failed Christ. And, and the And then that's the moment that Christ will say, but I died for you. I died for you. Exactly. Correct. Yep. You're all the time, and that's what the motion Correct. And the motion is Correct. But that's this side. We're talking about the point of the good and the bad. On the other side, all I've always thought of heaven is that all that is passed away. And if I should be and I will. Right. But I think it's I think it's a momentary anguish. Um, that the one I, the verse I love actually I'll, and then I'll turn it over to, to Joe. But the one the one I love that kind of gets to this is First John two one. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That word advocate is a word that describes a defense attorney. So he's the judge, but he is also the defense attorney who stands up and says, not guilty because of me, because of my sacrifice, because of my blood. Yeah, so it's an idea that... Um, that you know, for those of us who are parents, right? Um, you know when your child thinks that it was correct. That every single person was going to have to face up to the fact that we're going to do it. Some we did the one thing. Because none of us were all Wall Street. So we're going to have that to get rid And Hopefully, this is 
The sin is forgiven and is gone. As far as the east is from the west. We're just going to, what Jesus is talking about, those who don't want to get saved. He's not talking about They are born again and they have the blood of Jesus on them. He's talking about the servant doesn't care. Exactly. And again, if we go back to, if we go back to, you know, and again, if you're the, if you're the servant, you realize you have been neglectful or that you have been ignorant, right? What, what is our hope? It's, it's, it's 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light, right, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And that, uh, you know, if, if, if we confess our sins, right, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is our joy. This is the good news. So I want to give us a, just a couple minutes to pray as we prepare to go out into the world. Uh, but in light of kind of the theming here, again, I'll, I'll open the floor and, and let you pray. Uh, but I would encourage you to, to lift up the pastors, the leaders, the teachers among us and pray for that attentiveness to the things of God, being that good servant, that they would be strengthened and equipped to be the good servant and not be the, the servant who is lazy or ignorant, that we would be enlightened where we are ignorant, that we would be inspired to work where we are tempted to, to not work. So let me open us, and then I'll turn the floor over, and then at the appropriate time I'll close. Dear Lord, we love you, and we love your word, and we love the promise of forgiveness and salvation and repentance and cleansing that has been bought for us with the precious blood of Jesus our Savior. Lord, we do want to remember and take carefully these lessons that for those who have been entrusted with leadership, it is vitally important to fulfill that duty in a way that glorifies and honors and obeys Jesus Christ. So, as we open uh, turnover, our Lord, I pray that you will hear our prayers for those who lead and teach among us and out in the world for your glory. Father, I lift up all here in this community of faith who have responsibility for teaching, whether it's children or adults, of preaching, of 
leading, of discipling. Lord, much has been entrusted to us. Your word has been entrusted to us. Salvation through your Son has been given to us. Your Spirit resides within us. We are the temple of your Holy Spirit. So Lord, help us to never be ignorant of what you expect us to do. Give us the wisdom and the courage and the will and the strength to stand against temptation and to be faithful in teaching and stewarding all the things you have entrusted us with. It's in Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen.